Before I pray this morning, I would ask that you pray for me throughout this sermon. I don't have a fever, and I, don't, I just feel terrible. So I'll just ask you to pray for me, that the Lord would sustain me and bring me through. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you will make your power perfect in weakness. And Lord, we look to you to teach us through your word. We don't come with our own wisdom. We don't come with our own abilities. We don't come with our righteousness or our worthiness. Lord, we come because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your abundant revelation of yourself in the scriptures. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. We pray that you would show us the wonder of your ability to bring together perfect justice and steadfast love, your ability to make righteousness and peace kiss each other. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to worship you in response to these things. Lord, help us to know you. Make us people this year who are most characterized by the fact that we know the living God. And we ask that this would change everything about us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great concerns of our culture is a concern for justice. But one of the questions that our culture doesn't ask is, what's the definition of justice and what's the foundation of justice? Who gets to define what it is? Who gets to determine its parameters? And there, there are all different kinds of explanations that we could look to uh, for uh, explaining what justice is. Um, but, but if humans are not created in the image of God, and if there isn't a God who has an absolute and final standard of justice then I think we're going to continue to have a situation where the definition of justice and the application of justice remains completely disputed. And, and confusion is going to continue to reign. The ancient Greeks did not believe this about humanity. The ancient Greeks did not believe that humans were made in the image and likeness of God. And as a result, they didn't believe humans were responsible for what they did. So if you think, for instance, of uh, the start of, of that great story of the Iliad, uh, that story starts because this guy named Paris from Troy goes over and steals the wife of this, of this guy over in Greece named Menelaus. He steals Helen, and, and he induces Helen to enter in, into an adulterous relationship with him and go back with him to Troy. And as a result, all of Greece comes and besieges the city of Troy. But nobody holds Helen responsible for that. Nobody holds Paris responsible for that. The reason given for why these two people did this is because the goddesses, the goddesses were rewarding Paris for a choice that he had made. So it wasn't about adultery and about infidelity. It was about the gods being ultimately in control of human beings and the fates. And, and so people are not responsible. And yet they can't escape responsibility. I mean, the whole, the whole idea of the Greek army coming and besieging 
Troy is holding the Trojans responsible, isn't it? So it's like there's this denial of responsibility even as they try to maintain. We got the same thing working today. Today, it's not the gods who inhabit the heavens. You know, it's not Zeus and uh, Hera and um, Athena and the rest. No, it's these chemical processes. But we're not responsible for our actions. Our appetites, our cravings, our desires, this is all explained by the evolutionists as these chemical reactions in our brain. And ultimately, it's a sickness or it's a disease, but it's not something that I'm to be held responsible for like it's a sin. The Bible has a very different account of these things. In the Bible story, people are made in the image and likeness of God, and people make responsible choices for which they are held accountable, and the standard of justice comes from the living and true God. So in our culture, you're, you're, you've, I, I don't question for a second. You've heard people say, somebody has said to you in your lifetime, I, I'm willing to bet, what's right for you is not what's right for me. You've heard people say this. If they haven't said it directly to you, you've seen it on television. People talk like this. It, it assumes there isn't an absolute standard of right and wrong. A lot of this stems from various thinkers. One of the thinkers was Sigmund Freud. And uh, Philip Reif writes about Sigmund Freud that Freud held two, two things, two important things here. Number one, he believed that all guilt was false guilt. The reason for this is because there isn't an absolute moral standard. So anything that you feel guilty about is false. It's false guilt. You shouldn't feel guilty. Ever. That's the first thing Freud believed about guilt. The second thing he believed about guilt, remarkably, was that guilt was necessary to, to, to maintain civilization. Isn't that remarkable? It's false. You shouldn't really feel guilty. But if people don't feel guilty about things, we can't maintain society. We can't maintain civilization. Today, our culture embraces the first idea. Nobody should feel guilty about anything but we've rejected the second idea. We don't need guilt to maintain society. And as a result, everybody should be able to express who they feel they are. And everybody should be able to, to, to live out their impulses as long as you don't hurt somebody else. I, I, I would argue that people don't really live that way. People know deep down in their souls when they are guilty and people are yearning for an absolute standard of justice. And what we've got in Psalm 85 is a response to God's absolute standard of justice and an appeal, remarkably, for mercy. This is, this is, this is what's amazing about the Bible. It, it, it combines so perfectly justice and the possibility of mercy. You know, if you think about... Well, I'll just tell you about my parenting, right? My parenting is we have certain rules. We have standards in place. And the kids, they break the rules, they break the standards all the time. That's just what happens. I break the rules, I break the standards all the time. And what I do, too often, is I show, I show a sort of failed version of mercy. That is, I don't enforce the standard. What's happening there is I'm being unjust but I'm forgiving the transgression, but I'm not upholding righteousness. You see the problem? What's remarkable about God 
is that he can uphold righteousness and forgive. And, and as we look at Psalm 85, we'll explore how the Lord is able to do this. So I would invite you to open your Bible and look with me at Psalm 85. And let me draw your attention immediately first to verses 4 and 7. So in verse 4, the psalmist says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Verse 7, Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Both of those verses, verses 4 and verse 7, mention salvation. So the psalmist is asking for restoration, the removal of God's wrath, and deliverance, salvation. Why does he need to do this? He needs to do this because uh, Israel is in covenant with God. They've come into the land. They've broken the covenant. And now they're experiencing God's wrath. God's state, God told them, if you break the covenant, these are the curses of the covenant that are going to fall on you. And they're experiencing those curses of the covenant. If we were to, if we were to start reading, say, in Psalm 73 and, and read through book uh, 3 of the Psalter, we would see in Psalm 74 that the temple has been attacked as a result of enemy armies that God is using to discipline Israel. Then we would see the same thing in Psalm 79. The temple is under attack from these enemy armies that God is using to discipline Israel. And those attacks are expressions of God's justice against Israel, and that's what they're asking to be restored from here in Psalm 85. Let me, let me throw in another side note about... Uh, our, our, the postmodern world that we live in. People are concerned about absolute standards of justice because they, they, they sense, there's something in us that senses that if there's an absolute standard, that's going to, to be used to exclude or to alienate or to oppress certain people. And so they reject all uh, overarching stories, all absolute standards because they don't want those to be used to oppress people. And what has happened as a result? We've all experienced it, haven't we? The, the postmodernists who have rejected the absolutes have themselves introduced a new absolute. You can't have your standards. And they are just as self-righteous and just as condemning as those whom they are rejecting and condemning who held to those absolute standards, right? I mean, we heard it this fall when there was a reference made to a basket of deplorables. That's the application of an absolute standard of morality from one who claims not to hold to an absolute standard of morality. What delivers us from this is what we see in this psalm. Israel was warned throughout the Old Testament that because they had been oppressed in Egypt, they should not turn and oppress others. They shouldn't oppress the poor within their own nation, and they shouldn't oppress foreigners. Well, they fell into doing that kind of thing, and now God is calling them to, to, to account for their oppression of the weak and the marginalized and the different. God is calling them to account. They're experiencing God's justice, and now they're crying out for restoration from it. Uh, what we're going to see in this psalm is the way that the psalmist appeals for restoration from God's justice. Uh, he first starts in verses 1 through 3, he's going to appeal to the past. And, and um, this is a great opportunity for us at the, at the turn of the year to think about where we've been 
and to think about what God has done for us in our lives. And that's what the psalmist, psalmist is modeling for us right here in Psalm 85, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. He says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You might be looking at, if you're looking at the New American Standard, it says you restored the captivity of Jacob. And I think that's a, that's a more literal rendering. It probably has in view the way that Israel, they were captives in Egypt. And, and God restored them to freedom and gave them their land. And then uh, perhaps on these occasions in Psalm 74 and Psalm 79, when the enemy, enemy armies overcame the temple, perhaps some Israelites were were taken captive on these occasions, and then maybe they were restored. But whatever the case, the psalmist is pointing to times in the past when God restored the captivity of Jacob. And he did this because he was favorable to his land. Verse 2. Now, why would he rehearse that God has done this in the past? He rehearses what God has done for them in the past because he wants God to do that in the present, doesn't he? They're crying out for salvation, for restoration, and they're remembering the way that the Lord has done this for them in the past. This is a really easy point of application for us. When you face difficulty, remember what God has done for you in the past. Remember the way the Lord has delivered you in the past. Just yesterday, my wife was telling, we were talking about something, and she said, that's something that you need to write down. And, and that we do. We need to write things down so that we don't forget God's mercies to us in the past. This is what the psalmist do, is doing here. Verse 1, you were favorable to us. You restored our fortunes. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Why is he saying this? You've done this for us in the past. We need you to do it for us now. You have forgiven us in the past. And I would just invite you to look at your life and consider the way that you have experienced so much of God's forgiveness. And what the psalmist is doing here is banking on that. He's experienced that forgiveness in the past. He wants it applied in the present. It's interesting what's rendered here in verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You could translate this. You bore or you carried the iniquity of your people. And I think what it's getting at is the way that when in, the sac- in the old covenant sacrificial system, when they would bring an animal up to the temple and, and lay their hands on that animal, the guilt was transferred to, from them to the animal, then the animal was slain, and then the blood of that animal was taken and thrown onto the altar. So it's like the guilt... Of the, tran- of the transgressor is then transferred to God's temple. And this results in, on the Day of, the, on the day of Atonement, the temple needs to be cleansed. That's the, one, of the, one of the aspects of the Day of Atonement is the cleansing of the temple, and it's because the Lord himself has been ge- bearing the sins of his people. And of course, we know this is what Christ did on the cross as well, isn't it? Our guilt, those of us who have turned from sin and trust in Christ, our guilt is transferred to him. And he has borne our guilt, making it so that this forgiveness is possible. You forgave the iniquity of your people. And then there's another aspect of it here. You covered all their sin. Somehow, God makes it so that sin is covered by blood. 
so that when God looks at people who have, in Leviticus, it talks about how the worshiper needs to realize the guilt of his sin. He needs to understand that he's in the wrong. And then he comes and he offers that sacrifice for atonement. And when that blood is offered, the guilt is covered. This is amazing. You can be somebody who's guilty, and God himself is bearing your guilt. You can be somebody who, because you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, even though you're guilty, God makes it so your guilt is covered. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see the guilt. He sees the provision that's been made. And we know that that provision has been fulfilled in Christ. And then look at verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath. This is the result of that atonement, that covering, that forgiveness. If, If the sin and guilt is covered, well, there's no more reason for God to feel righteous indignation against the oppressor, the transgressor. And that's what's being described here. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So the song, notice how all those statements in verses 1 through 3 are in the past. This is what you've done for us in the past. And now he wants to apply it to the present in verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. So they've experienced God's mercy in the past, but now, because of their ongoing sin, they're experiencing God's justice, His discipline, and the response is to rehearse what God has done in the past and cry out for new salvation. Maybe as you stand here at the threshold of 2017, you think that nothing is going to be different this year. Y- yesterday, I was, I was talking to a man at the pancake breakfast. I'm so thankful, praise the Lord, that this pancake breakfast is happening. Uh, there are opportunities to talk to people that I would never encounter. I talked to a man who says, told me that he lives in a tent over around the way. And we were talking about um, what's going on in his life, and he, his struggle is alcohol. And I said, uh, you're enslaved to it. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, you know, you could be free from that. And he said, I don't believe that. And I said, do you want to be free? He said, freedom would be great. And I said, do you want to take the steps necessary to become free? He said, I'm not sure I do. 2017 doesn't have to be what every year of your life to this point has been. You can know freedom. You can cry out for this salvation here in verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. The Bible says that everyone, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The power of Christ is strong enough to break whatever chains bind you. You can have freedom. You can have freedom, but you're responsible. We're not ancient Greeks. We don't believe that the, the gods, you know, Hera and, and Athena and, and Diana, and the, we don't believe that they're up there just controlling our destinies. Nor do we believe that you are simply the product of your, the chemical processes in your brain. You know what that does? That absolves your responsibility. It also takes away any human dignity you might have. We believe you have dignity. God created you as a human being made in his image and likeness. 
And you're responsible for your choices. And what we're calling you to do is to turn away from those masters that are enslaving you, that would kill you, and trust completely in the one who can free you. And we're inviting you to pursue him with us, to walk with him with us. So verses 1 through 3, all that's geared. All that's geared for the plea for salvation in verse 4. The past deliverance is the basis for the present plea for salvation. And then in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist is going to ask a series of questions. And um, he knows the answers to these questions. He knows the answers to these questions because he knows the Bible. Look at verse 5 there. Will you be angry with us forever? Now, the psalmist knows the Lord is not going to be angry with the people of Israel forever because God has revealed. I mean, at one place, clearly, where it says God's not going to be angry with his people forever is Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord promises. He says, I would have wiped out Israel completely if their enemies wouldn't have gotten the wrong idea from it. If their enemies wouldn't have said, it was my hand that did this. We destroyed that people. What the Lord is saying is, I'm not going to allow them to be wiped out completely, finally, utterly. So the psalmist knows God is not going to be angry with them forever. He knows, verse 5, will you prolong your anger to all generations? He knows the answer to that. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? You could, you could render this. That word revive has to do with the giving of life. You could render that, will you not give us life again that your people may rejoice in you? These are people who have experienced the, the death that comes at God's justice. And they're asking for the resurrection life that he alone can give. And he knows that God has promised to do these very things for God's people. This is, I mean, this is like my kids, right? Um, we, we've, we've made a promise to them about some privilege they're going to enjoy, some movie they're going to get to watch, or some uh, dessert they're going to get to eat. And what do they do? They immediately start asking, can we have it now? Can we watch it now? When are we going to? And, and what it does is it prompts us eventually to give in. That's what the psalmist wants. The psalmist wants the Lord to relent. He know, he's relating to the Lord as a children relates to his father, as a child relates to his father. And he's, he knows God's promises, and he's trying to get the Lord to act on his behalf. Verse 7. This verse stands at the middle of the whole psalm. Everything prior to verse 7 builds up to verse 7. Everything after verse 7 deals with, um, expresses confidence in verse 7 and deals with possible objections that might arise from verse 7. So, you know, we don't think of the main point being in the middle, uh, but, but often in the Psalms, the main point is in the middle, and there are these matching elements on either, either side, and that's what we've got here. This is what the psalmist wants God to do, verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O God, and grant us your salvation. Yesterday in the car, we were listening to um, the fourth book of the Harry Potter stories, um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And in that story, the great evil power, Lord Voldemort, uh, I mean, J.K. Rowling uses so much Christian symbolism and, and uh, imagery, and uh, it's like Voldemort, this dark, evil wizard, is reborn. He's born anew, and it, and it comes in the process of a baptism. He's in a cauldron, and he comes out of that cauldron, and he is renewed in his powers, 
And he calls all of his, his uh, death eaters, that's his, his gang, his, his thugs, he calls them all to be present with him on this occasion, and they're in a graveyard. And he is indicting them for the way that they did not try to help him when he was, when he was disembodied. So in the broader uh, story, what's happened is Voldemort tried to kill Harry Potter, and it almost killed him. It disembodied him so that he was this bodiless spirit. And he's indicting these, these gangsters of his for not coming to his aid. And, and they're confessing their guilt. And Vol- Voldemort says, Lord Voldemort does not forgive. He does not forget. Praise God, Lord Voldemort is not God. That is not, I mean, Voldemort, he cannot, he cannot initiate the truth of justice that the God of the Bible can, but he is not a forgiving God either. Look at verse 7. The psalmist is saying, it's like he's saying, look, Lord, we know you're just. We've experienced your justice. That's what we're asking for restoration from. We also know you're loving and forgiving. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That's what he wants right there. He wants, this is that Hebrew word, chesed. He wants steadfast love, loving kindness, and salvation. And coming out of that, in in verses 8 and following, we see his confidence. He's confident that God is going to do this very thing. Look at what he says in verse 8 there. He says, let me hear what God, the Lord, will speak. And then look at this confidence. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. He is absolutely sure that God is going to speak shalom to his people. How does he know this? He knows this because he knows the Bible. And he knows this because he knows the character of God. And he knows that God is not one of these gods who's whimsical and changes his mind and, and decides that this is, nope, that's not the standard. We're going to make this the standard. Nope, we don't like that boundary. We're going to move it over here. No, that's not how the God of the Bible is. If the God of the Bible says this is the standard, that's the standard. So he says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Now, if anybody might object, wait a minute, hold on here. According to your standards, Lord, those people deserve wrath, not mercy. Those people don't deserve shalom. They don't deserve peace. They deserve justice. Well, look at what the psalmist says at the end of verse 8 there. But let them not turn back to folly. If they turn back to folly, you know what? You're going to be right. They're going to expect. They're going to deserve wrath and justice. So let them not turn back to folly. Well, what about the past transgressions? I think the psalmist is assuming that the experience of God's wrath has, has, has paid for what they've, what they've experienced. So he's crying out now for mercy. He also knows, and I think this is presupposed here, about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And I think there are further indications that we could find in the Old Testament that are pointing forward to this ultimate and final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, which will satisfy God's justice. So all of this is, I think, presupposed by the psalmist as he says, God is going to speak peace to his people, but let them not turn back to folly. And then he says something similar in verse 9, surely... 
His salvation is near. But then he adds, to those who fear him. To those who fear him. It's, it's those who fear God. In other words, you can't sit here and be somebody who doesn't fear God at all. And your actions show you don't fear God's justice. You don't fear God's wrath. You don't fear God's standards. With impunity, you transgress the boundaries all the time. You trample on God's grace because you assume you're going to get away with it because you've always gotten away with it. And so you don't fear God. If you're that kind of person, salvation is not near you. Wrath is near you. Verse, verse 9 there says, salvation is near to those who fear him. And their fear of God keeps them within the boundaries. Their fear of God keeps them from trampling on his grace. Their fear of God keeps them from sinning with impunity. Their fear of God keeps them from, verse 8, turning back to folly. And the result of all this, at the end of verse 9, that glory may dwell in our land. Now this brings in, I think, a sort of broader and wider application of the plea for restoration that the psalmist is crying out for. He's asking for restoration there in verse 4. I think we can, we can say in a narrow or in a, in a short-term sense, this psalmist is responding to some disciplinary action of the Lord. Maybe there was a, a, an occasion, maybe it's one of the ones recorded in Psalm 79 or Psalm 74, where an enemy army came, did some damage to the temple, took some people captive, and the psalmist is crying out for restoration in response to that. That's the narrow, short-term, uh, specific situation. More broadly, the psalmist knows from the Bible that Humanity has been driven from the presence of God when we were banished from the Garden of Eden. And he knows that God is going to renew our experience of his presence. So more broadly and, and more widely, that glory may dwell in our land is not this specific uh, short-term restoration that he's asking for. It's the worldwide experience of the glory of God that is the end goal of the whole Bible. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And then verse 10. I think, I think verse 10, it's one of these verses that makes me feel totally inadequate to expose. I don't know how to exposit this in any, any way that's worthy of Psalm 85 verse 10. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. If, if this is not on your list of verses to memorize, I would encourage you to put it there. To, 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 to note this one down, write it on the tablet of your heart, and, and cling to it all your days. Steadfast love, that's chesed, and faithfulness. This is an interesting uh, word. It, it's the Hebrew word emet, which can be translated both faithfulness and also truth. And I think that the fact that it's translated in different ways gets at the way that those who live faithfully live in accordance with the truth. And that brings us back to that absolute standard of truth, doesn't it? Again, one of the reasons that people are afraid of these overarching claims of absolute truth is because of the way that these things might be used against people who don't agree. But here... Steadfast love and truth or faithfulness meet. In other words, there's no, there's no conflict. There's no disagreement between 
the tender, forgiving sympathy that might prompt you to want to let somebody off and the upholding of the absolute and utter righteous standard. Those two things God is able to hold together. He's able to uphold righteousness and extend loving kindness. And then the psalmist says it in another way. He sort of reverses the order. Um, so emet, faithfulness, is like tzedek, righteousness. And then shalom, peace, is like chesed, steadfast love. So these, these are balancing items here. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. There's this beautiful symphonic harmony of these attributes of God, this absolute rightness and upholding of truth that is in the very character of God is not at odds with his fatherly tenderness and disposition to forgive those who fear him, those who realize their guilt, those who cry out for restoration and salvation. And if anybody were to say, you know, if God does that, if God lets the guilty go free, which, by the way, Proverbs 17.15 says that acquitting the guilty is detestable to Yahweh. Acquitting the guilty is detestable to the Lord. Why? Because it's unjust to do that. Well, then how can God acquit the guilty? Well, because he's perfectly able to uphold righteousness. In the Old Covenant, through the sacrificial system. In the New Covenant, now, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But if anybody objects, if you do that, if you let the guilty go free, well, obviously... Sin is just going to multiply, isn't it? People are going to go rampant with their wickedness because you're not punishing them for it. They're just going to run with it. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 11. That's not what he describes. Verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. What he's saying is this is a transformative experience of the justice and the mercy of God that produces changed people. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. It's like the people are, are these seeds of truth. Emmet there again, faithfulness. These seeds have been planted, and then it gets watered with the love of God, and then the Holy Spirit shines on it like the sun, and then it begins to sprout up like a tree, and it begins to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness, emmet, truth, springs up from the ground. And righteousness, sedek, looks down from the sky. It, it's almost as though God is looking down from the skies in his, in his fully righteous character, and he's pleased with the way that his demonstration of, of chesed, steadfast love in verse 10, has caused people to live in accordance with the truth. Faithfulness there in verse 11. You know what? There's hope here for the new year, isn't there? There's hope that your experience of the love and justice of God can change your life. Verses 1 through 3, you should remember what God has done for you in the past. Verses 5 and 6, all these questions, you should know what God has promised to do in the Bible. 
You should appeal to God on the basis of what he's done for you in the past, what he's promised to do for you in the Bible. And then you should worship God. I think that's what verses 10 and 11 are about, mainly verse 10. You should worship God's ability to hold together the standard and to be forgiving. And then you should enjoy the transformation that comes. Verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good. You know, all these terms um, should make us think of Exodus 34, where um, Moses had said in Exodus 33, he had said, um, I've got one more request for you, Lord. Cause all your glory to pass before me. Let me see your glory, Moses said. And the Lord said to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim my name before you. So that word good there, verse 12, the Lord will give what is good. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And then the Lord passed before Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And he said of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and truth or faithfulness, emmet. A God who doesn't clear the guilty, but a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. How do you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin if you're not going to clear the guilty? How do you do that? Only the God of the Bible can pull that off. And under the Old Covenant, he provides the sacrificial system for those who realize their guilt, repent of it, and come and offer the prescribed sacrifice. And then all of that is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So when the psalmist says here in verse 10, yes, the Lord will give what is good. What he's saying, I think, is he's going to give us all of his good intentions that flow from his own character. We're going to experience the realization of God's cosmic purposes for creation. And our land will yield its increase. That's in the future. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you were favorable to your land in the past. Now there's this confidence looking forward to the future for the land. And then verse 13. This, this brings us back to this absolute standard. The psalmist says here, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now what's, what's happening, I think, is righteousness is being personified, which is interesting because righteousness is one of God's own attributes. But it's like this attribute of God, righteousness, is separated from God and, and is depicted as somebody who's walking before the Lord himself. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps, righteousness's footsteps, the way in which God is going to follow after and in which the people then are also to follow. There is enormous comfort, isn't there? I think there's enormous comfort that we don't have to be lost in some postmodern confusion about what right and wrong are. There, there is an absolute standard of righteousness that is both perfectly upheld and there's a provision made for those who, who recognize they've fallen short and who seek mercy from the righteous judge. And he's a God who loves to show mercy to those who repent. One of the questions, one of the problems that people have with, with all this talk about righteousness and absolute standard and all the rest, um, one of the problems that people have is that um, 
people become self-righteous if, if they feel like they've got the absolute truth. But we're people who have been broken by that absolute righteousness, aren't we? We're guilty people. And our, if, if you're self-righteous, you're in the wrong. You're going to fall under the condemnation of Jesus. You can't be self-righteous if you've experienced this kind of mercy. It's transformative. God's power is awesome to save. As we look back on the old year, I would encourage you to think about Psalm 85, verses 1 through 6. Maybe, maybe read over it this, this afternoon and think about the way that God has been faithful and kind to you and saved you and been favorable to you. And then as you look forward to the new year, think about verses 8 through 13. And the whole thing, we want 85-7 to be in the whole thing. We're looking forward to God's promises of peace, to the way that he's going to transform us as a result of who he is, and we want to worship him, and we want to know his steadfast love. God's power, God's power can save anybody. Um, yesterday in, in um, maybe it was yesterday, when was this? This was Friday. In Friday's um, paper, there was an article by a guy named Andrew Claven. This guy was a secular Jew who was, who was already in his 50s. Now, he's, a, he's an educated, secular Jew in his 50s. And if you, if you were to say to me, um, you want to write a profile of somebody that's a long way from the gospel, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good one to start with, right? He's, he's secular, he's educated, he knows what he thinks, and, and he understands the culture, He's a, he's a widely published novelist. I mean, if you go to Amazon.com and type in his name, Andrew, K-L-A-V-A-N, you'll find a lot of books there that this guy has written. He says that he understood that to accept, this is a quote, he says, for me to accept the truth of God and his incarnation in Jesus Christ was to defy the culture of the age. It's a rebellion against everything that, that reigns in our culture. He said, he goes on to say later in the article, he says, to break this materialist spell and to set oneself free for faith requires rebelling not against scientific facts, but against flawed scientist logic. So he's, he's, he's breaking out of that closed system of cause and effect where everything has a material explanation. Um, he, another, another interesting quote, he says, if, if, if a person is simply a chemistry set crossed with a computer, you know, if all you have in your brain are these chemical reactions crossed with some kind of intelligence, if you're just a chemistry set crossed with a computer, then morals are empty. There aren't absolute standards. But he's come to reject all this. And he says, he says, my baptism in 2004 was an act of transgression transgression against the secular culture and its standards. He says, I sensed it at the time and know it all the more certainly today. I was nearly 50 then. I had lived my adulthood as a postmodern man, a worldling of the coasts and cities. For me to accept the truth of God and his incarnation in Jesus Christ was to defy the culture of the, of the age. It's a, it's a great story of God's redeeming Grace. There is nobody that God can't save. There is no sin that is too strong for God to overcome in our lives.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the hope that the scriptures give us. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for the way that your righteous standard does not leave us feeling self-righteous or better than other people. No, it, it humbles us and it breaks us and it, it condemns us. And then your love and your salvation and your mercy in Christ gives life and transforms. And we worship you because you are the one who does this. You are the one who gets all the credit for the good that we do, for the good that you work in our lives. It's your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility for ourselves, to recognize your righteous standard, to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ, and I pray that you would cause this transformation to spread through this neighborhood, through the city, through the culture. Lord, we ask that you would make your name great through this, the ministry of this church. And we pray that, that you would help us to worship you in response to your goodness. Lord, we love you and commit ourselves to you, asking your blessing on the new year in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>